Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14. We are continuing our sermon series entitled uh, uh, Dinners with Jesus. And this morning we are looking at a dinner recorded there in the 14th chapter of Luke. And I will admit that I don't have my Bible on the right page. Luke 14. We'll be reading verses 1 to 24. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means that this book alone tells us what we must believe and how we must live. And so we turn to it now. Hear the word of the Almighty. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house, that is Jesus, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, 
what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. To him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, show us Jesus' mission at this meal and move us to take it up and further it here and now. In his name we pray. Amen. Surprise, search, slumber. What do those three words have in common? Surprise, search, slumber. Maybe you've played the board game called Tribond. In that game, you are given three things that seem disparate, that seem unrelated, and you have to find the thread that ties them together. Surprise, search, slumber. What do they have in common? They're all types of parties. A surprise party, a search party, and a slumber party. June... John, VW. They're all types of Beatles. A June Beetle, John Lennon, and a Volkswagen Bug. Last one. A snowstorm in Florida, the USS John McCain, a hula hoop with a nail in it. They're all naval destroyers. A snowstorm in Florida, the USS John McCain, a hula hoop with a nail in it. (laughs) They're all naval destroyers. You see, I didn't have time to prepare a sermon this week, so I just thought we'd play a game. No, 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 that's not it at all. Rather, as I prepared this sermon, this game came to mind because I found myself saying, what do these three stories in this text have in common? How do they go together? A man healed of dropsy? A parable about uh, uh, people attending a banquet, the guests at a banquet, and a parable about a banquet host. What do they have in common? What ties all of these things together? I suppose you could say, well, the common thread among them is the way Jesus made things awkward. Maybe, maybe that's an okay answer. Certainly, Jesus does have a way of creating awkward social situations. But I don't think that's what Jesus or Luke had in mind when the former did all of these things together and the latter chose to record them all. Keep in mind, Jesus did a great deal more than the Gospels record. So Luke, having all of this information about Jesus, chose to include all three of these stories. So the Holy Spirit inspired Jesus to teach these things and inspired Luke to pass them along to us. So we have to ask ourselves, what do they all have in common? Let's go back over each subsection and see if we can't draw out the individual lessons and then begin to see the thread that ties them together. So we're going to go back up to verse 1. I'm going to read through the passage again and stop and make comments along the way and try to bring out what is going on. So here we are in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him 
carefully. Why? Why are they watching Jesus carefully? Verse 2, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. I'll do my best Admiral Akbar impersonation and say this. It's a trap. They've set Jesus up. And behold, there was a man before him with dropsy. This guy just happened to wander in. No, he's a pawn in the Pharisees' schemes. He is a man who has been put there to trip up Jesus. Now, maybe you all knew this medical term. I didn't. I had to go look it up. Dropsy is a generic term for any condition that causes swelling due to excess water retention. Okay? Any term that causes the body, or any disordered disease that causes the body to retain water and swell is dropsy. So this man, in all likelihood, would have had severely swollen arms and severely swollen legs. So he is in a great deal of pain, a great deal of discomfort. He cannot move easily. He could not have wandered there readily on his own. This is a setup. This is a trap. You see, we read our New Testament reading earlier from Luke 6, wherein Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and wherein the Pharisees were angry with him for doing so. And now the Pharisees are setting him up to do it again. You see, the thinking probably goes like this. Okay, maybe this carpenter from Galilee, this guy from Nazareth, maybe he doesn't understand the Sabbath rules. So that first healing, well, maybe he didn't realize he shouldn't have done that. But if he does it again, we've got him. Verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees who hadn't said anything at all. He's responding to the trap. He's responding to the setup. Saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I want you to recognize right now, this is not meek, mild-mannered Jesus. There will come a day in Jesus' earthly ministry where he will passively let events come to him. And things happen to him. But this is not that day. This is Jesus spoiling for a fight. This is Jesus ready to get into the ring and have it out. This is Jesus on a mission. This is Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you want to set a trap for me? I'll do you one better. You see how he gets out ahead of what the Pharisees are trying to do to him. He understands that if he heals the man and then they have a discussion about it, they get the last word. So let's have the discussion first. What do you say? Is it okay to heal him? You see, Jesus knows where this is headed, and he's playing a game at the highest level so that he gets the last word. But they remained silent. These experts in the law have already sussed out where this is headed. They know they're trapped. 
If a baker bakes on the Sabbath, he violates the law. If a farmer farms on the Sabbath, he violates the law. And so logically, if a healer heals on the Sabbath, he violates the law. And yet, deep inside, even these Pharisees know there is a difference between a baker baking and a healer healing. They are stymied by their own small view of God and his law. And so they do not answer. In a modern adaptation, if I were to bring this into today's lingo and experiences, uh, let me suggest that Jesus is playing politics at the highest level. If a fair, and by the way, as a guy who hates politics, it pains me to say that Jesus was really good at politics, but he was. Um, if a Pharisee were to respond, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then someone else is going to yell, soft on crime! Look at him. He doesn't understand this Pharisee. He calls himself a Pharisee, and he's saying, yes, it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. But if one of these Pharisees should say, no, it is not okay to heal on the Sabbath, then someone is going to yell, uncaring, lacking compassion, and Jesus has backed them into a corner using the trap they had set for him. By way of contrast, it's interesting, when Jesus is questioned on paying taxes, perhaps you'll remember the story, they come to him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He says, give me a coin, and he unfolds how they, what they should do. Mark, in Mark's account of that, Mark reports the Pharisees approached him saying, and this is a kind of a, a literal translation. Most of our English Bibles don't render it this way, but this is a literal translation. The Pharisees say to Jesus, we're asking you about the taxes because you speak the truth and do not look at men's faces. What does that mean? That, that Jesus, when he preached and taught, he did this the whole time, not making eye contact with anybody, he just preached and taught? No! The point is that Jesus isn't reading their faces. He doesn't care if they grimace or smile or, or frown because he don't care what you think of what he's saying. He's going to say the truth that needs to be said. He isn't worried about the polling data. The Pharisees were all about what people thought of them. It's why these meals were such a big deal. It's why they were such a social event. And Jesus is taking their concern for public opinion and using it to back them into a corner. Uh, picking up, in, I think I'm still in verse 4. Then he took the man with dropsy and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? It's a rhetorical question. Of course you will all pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. At Jesus' first question, they did not reply. At this one, Luke changes his verbiage and says they cannot reply. Jesus points out that the principle by which they live and act toward themselves and their family actually better captures the essence of God's law. But that's not the system they're applying to everybody else. 
They were right to help a son on the Sabbath. They were right even to help their ox on a Sabbath. They needed only to take that principle and extend it to everyone else. After all, if the Sabbath was a day of rest from the good things in the pre-fall creation, keep that in mind. The Sabbath predates sin. It predates the fall. If the Sabbath was a day of rest given to rest even from good things, how much more should it be a day of rest from the evil that has come into this world? How much more should it bring God's rest from the effects of sin? And yet, on another Sabbath confrontation, not this one, not the one in our New Testament reading, a third one. Jesus' disciples, Jesus and his disciples, were walking through a ripe wheat field. And his disciples reached down and plucked some of the heads of the wheat, and they kind of peeled back some of that you know, hairy, grassy stuff that's in there, and they pulled out the wheat seeds, and they're just eating these raw wheat kernels as they go along. But technically, they had harvested the wheat, hadn't they? <gasps> That was work. They had done work on the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't scold them. So the the Pharisees go after him. And they say, you're the teacher. You're the leader of this band. Why don't you stop them? They're harvesting wheat. And then Jesus points out, do you not understand that even David did what was forbidden by the law when it was necessary to sustain him and his men? And then Jesus makes an important comment. Man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus says, you don't understand the principle of God's rest. Before the fall, before Adam sinned, when work was a good part of our lives, a good part of God's creation, still, even then, he wanted us to take a break from it once every seven days. So how much more important will it be after the fall, after the curse, after thorns and thistles, after pain and childbearing, after all these negative consequences of sin? Rest would have been even more important, and that's what Jesus offers this man. Rest. This man is suffering. And Jesus offered rest. This man was hurting, and Jesus offered rest. This man probably hasn't truly rested, truly slept in months and months because of the pain and discomfort. And Jesus offered rest. You see, Jesus is fulfilling the Sabbath for this man. Is this not one of the great blessings of the Lord's table each Sunday? For all the suffering of the weak, for all the pain of the weak, for all the weight of sin we carry, does not the Lord's table offer us a place like this man experienced? A meal where we can get rest. Where we can breathe deeply and let out a sigh. That no matter what has gone on this week, no matter what sin we have fallen into, no matter what uh, evil we have done, we're reminded He still loves me.
I'm still his. I get to come to the family dinner table of God Almighty. Just as this man at this feast on this occasion experienced rest from the effects of sin, we come to the Lord's table to experience rest from the effects of sin. At this meal, Jesus revealed yet again his mission to bring rest to the weary, to save the suffering, to reverse the curse. And later, after his resurrection, he will commission the twelve to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, what is a disciple? It is a student, a follower. It's an apprentice of sorts who follows the master around, watches what he does, and then copies it, imitates it, mimics it. So, dear disciple, is there a recipe here for evangelism? Could we use meals as mission? Should we sit down with others around the table, learning what's hurting them, learning their spiritual dropsy, and offer the healing that Jesus offers. Why don't we? What gets in our way? Picking up in verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Let someone more distinguished than you lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our son Caleb was a mere private first class and just 19 years old when he attended a banquet, of all places, at the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait. That's kind of a big deal. Embassy dinner, the, the U.S. ambassador was there, some bigwigs were there. It's kind of cool. Now, during dinner, a very friendly older man came and sat down next to Caleb and began asking Caleb about his ribbons, about his responsibilities in the army, etc. Now, to be sure, Caleb was unusually well-decorated for a mere 19-year-old, and so, feeling rather proud of his uniform and ribbons and accomplishments, he maybe went a little overboard, explaining, some of you can see where this is headed already, I can tell, <laughs> maybe explaining to the man all about the army. Caleb's sense of self-importance took a hit, when after dinner, the MC introduced the night's keynote speaker and guest of honor, retired three-star general, I don't remember his name, John Smith, at which time Caleb's table mate and newfound friend arose, walked to the dais, and took the microphone and accepted the applause of the crowd. Ouch. A private first class had just explained army life to a three-star general. While Caleb's youthful enthusiasm is somewhat understandable, Still, the underlying issue with almost all sin is pride. Pride was at the root of Adam's 
sin. And it's still our single biggest stumbling block. Adam thought that he saw a way to attain what he wanted without following God's direction. He was prideful. He thought he was all that. But he was wrong. Horribly wrong. Now, the ancient Mediterranean world was an honor-driven world. The culture was all about honor and the perception of honor. So perhaps in one of our feasts, at one of our wedding receptions, if one or two people were to pick up their name cards and switch them to another table, we'd kind of just let it go. We wouldn't make a scene. But you see, back then, had the host not dealt with it, then the host would have been insulting somebody. In that culture, it was expected that certain people sit in certain spaces, that the highest honored person be in that place, and then moving out, and then over here, and then these people sit over there. And so if you had moved a name card in that culture, it would have been the host's responsibility, their obligation to go put it back and make it right. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, why don't you act more like that general? Just be unassuming. Just sit down. Just take the first place available. In particular, take the place of least honor. Now, Jesus has jumped from a discussion of healing on the Sabbath to a a situation where people are jockeying for social position, and we have to ask ourselves, how do they connect? What ties them together? Well, remember, this banquet is being thrown to trap Jesus. In other words, the host and his friends are there to judge the one who will be the judge of all the world. That's arrogant. That's pride. That they believed that they would get to sit in judgment over the one to whom the Father will entrust all judgment. They cannot conceive of the great and terrifying irony of this. But, you say, I don't sit in judgment of Jesus. I'm not as prideful as these men were. That's probably true. I doubt few of us are as prideful as some of these men were. But that doesn't mean that we're free from pride. You can be less prideful than these men and still be very prideful. A psychology professor I once worked with, she quipped, I'll see if I can say it the way she said it, somehow every man who walks in front of a mirror sees Robert Redford. For you younger crowd here, maybe insert Chris Evans. Somehow every man who walks in front of a mirror sees Robert Redford. You get her point? There is a pride to us males. We think we're all that, and we ain't. But let's not imagine for a moment that pride is limited to men. It is also a disease of women. It is a sickness that infects us 
all. Pride knows no gender boundaries, and yet it can be a barrier to godliness. We think more highly of ourselves than we should. Just ask yourself, when was the last time I truly owned up to being wrong? Ouch. It hurts. We all, remember that old TV show, Happy Days? We all have that Fonzie complex. We can't say, I'm wrong. Because of our pride. Where else do we see the pride of humanity? Well, anywhere there's authority in our lives. Anytime we have an authority, whether it's the governor telling us we should wear a mask or a parent telling us to apologize to our friend or a church elder saying, hey, that's sin. Our response is almost always the same. You can't tell me what to do. How do we not hear Adam when we say that? God ordains every authority over us. He elects governors. He chooses our parents. And he ordains church elders. In Romans 13, it's clear anyone who rebels against earthly authority rebels against God. And the reason is pride. So it's not a sermon really about authority, but rather I do want us to see how our pride really does creep in to our everyday lives. In this meal... We see a summary of Jesus' mission to give rest to the weary, to offer healing to the afflicted. And then we also see him confronting the basic human obstacle to that mission, pride. Ironically, the one who would do what Jesus suggests in this parable, who would sit in the low spot, would actually be at rest. For while everyone else is jockeying and elbowing for the seats of pride, he's already relaxed and started eating the hors d'oeuvres. And the most that can happen at that point is that he is honored by being invited to move up. In our scramble for our pride and our perception, we miss the great rest that comes from humility. In this meal, Jesus on a mission, a mission to bring healing to the hurting and a mission to humble the proud. And then he continues in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Huh. We don't have a lot of people on our invitation list left after that, do we? lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. I asked earlier if, as Jesus' followers, his disciples, we might not see in this meal a way to extend his mission. I think here we see a very practical application. To whom do we minister in our meals? Now, there's nothing wrong with Thanksgiving dinner with the family. There's nothing wrong with a church potluck enjoying one another. But do we ever reach out to the hurting, the lost, the suffering, the friendless, the lonely? Do we minister over our meals? You're going to eat three times a day anyway. 
do it with somebody who needs to know about Jesus. Hear what's hurting. Hear where they need healing. And offer what Jesus offers. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We cannot miss the clear teaching there. Jesus invites those people. That's you and me. The spiritually lame. The spiritually blind. The spiritually poor. And he gets nothing in return. But the joy of having us with him. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will, uh, will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You know, one of, the, one of the great dangers of academic learning is pride. <clears throat> you know, I love trivia night. I love trivial pursuit. Does anybody even still play that game? I don't know. In a Sunday school class, when the teacher asks a question, well, you know, I got four years of Christian college and four more years of seminary. I can't let that go to waste. I got to show I know the answer. Jesus. Not Jesus. Moses. Abraham. It's one of those three. Good thing I went to all that schooling, right? We've got to show off what we know. And this man yells out the answer. What yells out? He's so excited. Oh, you mentioned the resurrection. Blessed is anyone who eats in the kingdom of God. It's obvious that he is assuming that will be him. That he will be one of those eating. He has chosen for himself the place of honor. Verse 16, but Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had already been invited, come for everything is now ready. Quick explanation. Archaeology has uncovered enough documents that we have a pretty clear picture of what's going on here. In a world without clocks, in a world where time was very elastic, double invitation was the norm. You would first tell everybody, on this date, on February 11th, we're going to have a party. And then on the day of the event, you would send your servant back out again. You see, without clocks, and when meals are hard to prepare, when you've got one wood-burning stove to use, and you've got to get everything cooked, you couldn't predict reliably when it would actually be ready. So you send your servant back out to say, now it's ready. Clean up, head over to my master's house. Dinner will be on the table by the time you get there. That's why we have this double invitation. Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. No one, not today, not back then, buys real estate having never visited the property. This is a blatantly bad excuse. Verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Are you familiar with this company, Carvana? 
where you can buy a car you've never seen? Well, there was no Oxvana back then. There was no going online and finding, you know, what is the Kelly Blue Book value on a three-year-old low-mileage oxen? It's not how it worked. This is another blatantly bad excuse. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Well, this is a little better. You know, marriage is important. But it's unimaginable that on the occasion of the first invitation, this guy wouldn't have known when his wedding was. So he said yes to the first invitation. But when the servant comes back around to say, now dinner is ready, he goes, oh, I forgot to mention, I got married. Really? That slipped your mind? This is also a bad excuse. So what's really going on with these three? Well, they didn't want to offend the host openly and outwardly, so they gave every appearance of being in, of planning to attend. But when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, they really don't want to be with this host. Is that you today? Are you here in order to give the impression that you're in? But deep inside, you don't really want to be with the host. You don't really want to be holy. You don't really want to know God. You don't really want Jesus. How did the story conclude? The host says, nobody like that is ever going to taste my banquet. Merely being outwardly in does not put you in. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. This party is going to be filled. The kingdom of God is going to be filled. And God is going to fill it with the most unexpected of people. Picture a scene from a, a movie or a, a TV show where the, the, the hip nightclub, it's outside the cool party spot in town. And all the would-be partiers all wearing their, their best clothes, all sporting their drip. And if you don't know what that means, you ain't getting into this party. I had to look it up. I'm an old fogey. They're all sporting their drip so they can get into this party. And what happens? The bouncer stands at the door and says, you get in. Yeah, you're hot. You go in. You're good looking. You can go in. You pay me a hundred bucks. You can get in. And everybody else is left out there wishing. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work. The party of God, that's not how it's going to go down. In the party of God, the bouncer goes out and says to everybody in line, get out of here, you pretenders, you posers, you wannabes. And he goes to the wino, sitting across the alley, and says, you're in. Here's the clothes you need. And the prostitute down on the corner under the broken street lamp, you're in. Here's the clothes you need. 
and to the beggar sitting there shaking his can, rattling the coins, getting your attention, says, you're in. You see, the party of God is going to be filled with those who are not party worthy. The meal of God is for those who really don't deserve it. For how has Paul said it to the Corinthian church? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greed, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The party worthy are not getting in. At least those who are party worthy by the world's standards. God's banquet is going to be jam-packed with those who are going to shock us, going to knock our socks off. There are going to be people from your past who you wrote off. Oh, you probably didn't come right out and say this. But in the back of your head, there's no way that person's getting to heaven. And you've lost track of them. And God is working. And they're going to be there. Guess what? They're going to be just as surprised that you're there. Verse 22, and the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you not, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. The highways and hedges, simply just going out to the countryside, going to the farther out places. So first the servant went around town and gathered up the people. Banquet wasn't filled. Now go even further out, places where it seems less likely that you'll actually find anybody. that they need to be compelled to come in is really important. You see, the invitation for salvation catches sinners off guard. Are you really suggesting that Jesus might have died for me? Are we seeking to compel people to come into the kingdom of God? Are we making the argument over and over and over again? Insisting, yes, it's for you. Yes, you are headed to hell. Yes, there is a way to be in heaven. Yes, there is a way to be reconciled to God. Yes, there is a way to be healed from what hurts you. Yes, there is a way to be set free. I can't be. No way. I don't believe it for one minute. But the bouncer of the party keeps saying, yes, it's for you. Yes, the host is serious about you being there. The USS John McCain, a snowstorm in Florida, and a hula hoop with a nail are all naval destroyers. 
what ties these three stories together? They portray God's mission in a meal. God's party, God's festival banquet, God's glorious wedding feast of the Lamb will not be attended by those who seemed to have it all together. Rather, God is filling his future with those who have no business being there in the first place. The spiritually lame and deaf and blind are those who will be at God's feast. His mission is a meal filled with spiritual losers. And the only way to get there is to humbly admit that you don't deserve to be there. If you think you belong in heaven, if you think you're pretty good, or at the very least, better than most, or maybe even less than that, at least you're better than her, you've taken for yourself the place of honor. And it will be taken away from you. And you will be humiliated. Pride keeps us from God's goodness. It is those who humbly accept that they deserve nothing. It is those whom God uh, has humbled, who have recognized that they are sinners, who realize that in themselves they have nothing to offer God. It is those whom he elevates and lifts to places of honor. It is those he will celebrate on that day. Finally, Jesus used this meal to demonstrate his mission to heal and to renew and to restore and to reclaim and to repair. At each Lord's table, this is renewed and retaught. Jesus says, come, eat with me. You're my brother, my sister, co-heirs of God's riches. Regardless of how things have gone this past week, you're part of the family. So sit down and eat. There is a model here for us, I suspect, a way to minister, a way to extend Jesus's mission. Sit down with people. Serve them, yes, but sit down with them. Listen to them. Get to know them. Know where they hurt. Know what they need. Eat with them. And as you hear the hurt, bring the healer to bear. Jesus saw meals as mission. We can certainly do the same. Let's pray. God, it is not easy for us to see ourselves as the lame and the blind and the poor and the beggar. So humble us. Let us recognize how spiritually poor we really are in and of ourselves. Help us to pursue the the seat reserved for the least honorable, trusting you to lift us 
to the place where you want us. And as we go through this world, as we are reminded each uh, Lord's table of our place in the family of God, of our place at the table, help us to take that mission, that ministry in a meal, and apply it to others to build relationships and friendships to get to know those who are hurting. And by knowing them, show them you. Give us the humility to recognize that this is what you've done for us and the grace to want to do it for others. We pray this in Christ's name.